Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you coming across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions that drive the program each and every day. So if you've got a question about the Bible, a question about Bible prophecy, maybe a tough question or two has either been asked of you regarding your faith in uh, the Bible as God's inspired Word, or uh, perhaps you've always had a tough question about a passage or two in the Scripture that maybe has uh, raised more questions for you than has given you the answer, join on in. We would love to be able to uh, help uh, clarify any passages in the Bible that you'd like to explore, uh, help you dig deeper into God's Word, and maybe uh, be able to look at this crazy world we live in through a more decidedly biblical lens. Feel free to join on in uh, to our broadcast. Uh, you can do that a number of different ways. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, I assume you're already familiar with how to reach us on the station, but to send us your questions, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The questions is plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. That will be available at any time to receive your sincere Bible questions. If you're unable to catch us either through the live broadcast or want to know how to engage with us in a more live and on-the-air format. Uh, we, of course, are working on the moving uh, back to phone lines and such, but all the uh, tech adepts that you see working at this moment are who you see. We can't uh, screen the call, so we want to make sure you can use that email address as well as live chat. If you're able to join us on the internet, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church. There we are live streaming not only the broadcast, but also our, our bi-weekly Bible studies on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. That will be available for you to not only know when the broadcast is happening, we'll have a countdown to the next message, but also on the right-hand side of the screen to engage with us in leaving your questions. Our social media platforms are Facebook at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and YouTube at A Reason for Hope. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken down from said platforms, and we have had a few encounters in that regard, we encourage you to make it a habit of joining us on our website. That way, of course, if we are taken down and not due to some technical difficulty, there won't be any delay in us engaging with you face-to-face. Also note that if you're listening to us on Reach Radio, it will be taped delayed by one day, so if you sent in your question and are wondering why we're holding it off, don't worry, we have it ready at 
Beck and Colin on hand, and we want to make sure that we give it the time that it deserves. So if we're unable to, either during or after the broadcast, unable to get to your question or give it perhaps an R of anonymity and you want to think through how to phrase it, uh, feel free to email us at any time. We'll be happy to engage with it the moment that we have the chance on the next broadcast. And also note as well, the standards for our questions are as follows. Sincere Bible questions and the implications therein. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. The Bible is the topic of the answers we'll be providing. So if you have a question about anything that mentions the Bible, that's not a Bible question. We want the substance of the answer to be concerning the Bible. If you want to engage with us on that, we'll be happy to receive your questions, of course, in the form of a question. As long as we meet those three criteria, we'll be happy to engage with you for the next hour. But of course, we want to make sure the Lord speaks more than we do. So on top of a brief prophecy update, uh, before we start talking about anything, why don't we start with a word of prayer? Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to be able to gather in your presence and to be able to seek your truth and your word. I pray, Lord, that in the name of Jesus, you would uh, give us the wisdom and the insight that we need, not just to answer maybe even the presenting questions, but uh, get into the issues that you, Lord, really want to use to minister the hearts of people literally all over the world during this time. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Uh, We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. All right. So what is going on in terms of prophecy? Uh, Well, a few things. You know, it's uh, kind of interesting how uh, we've shared with you that in Matthew chapter 24, Uh, Jesus spoke about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, famines in different places being the beginning of sorrows. Uh, The word sorrows there in the original language carries the idea of birth pains. And one of the things we've encouraged you to do, uh, those of you who are regular uh, followers of A Reason for Hope, is to uh, be able to take a look at current events, especially those events Jesus uh, spoke of, as being like heavenly heads-ups to the proximity of his return uh, through that birth pain lens. Now, labor pains, as you know, increase in frequency and intensity as the big day draws near. And and so we've seen over time how uh, the uh, various heavenly heads-ups that Jesus gives us there in Matthew 24 uh, have a funny way of building up into a crescendo, into a fever pitch, and then subside after a time. Uh, Well, we're seeing a bit of a birth pain phenomena uh, beginning to develop today. There have been a couple of uh, very interesting uh, stories in the news uh, that certainly uh, do fit into the category of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, Alex Salvi, uh, who is a writer uh, for uh, the the, uh, website, uh, the daily news.com, Uh, has uh, a couple of stories that have broken. Uh, He uh, spoke of uh, how uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been making a uh, trip to Asia and has made a controversial decision to visit Taipei, Taiwan uh, tomorrow night. Well, that has not been in any way, shape, or form warmly welcomed uh, by the uh, press and uh, the official uh, news organs of uh, communist China. In fact, uh, the reaction from China is that China says its military might not sit idly by if House Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan. Well, the question comes up, will a... uh, dust-up between the United States and 
communist China happen if Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan? Well, it does appear that uh, our official uh, State Department uh, spokespeople have been trying to, uh, well, uh, turn down the volume on this conflict in, in a way that's uh, fairly controversial. Uh, one of the uh, spokesmen uh, for the State Department said that it is not the United States' position any longer that uh, Taiwan should be looked at as an independent nation separate from China. Uh, that, re that is a real reversal of a pretty standard operating procedure that we've had regarding uh, Taiwan and their independence uh, down through time. But uh, the, uh, the, the, the controversy uh, gets uh, brewing because on the one side of the coin, we're talking about Taiwan not being uh, considered by our State Department an independent nation, but Nancy Pelosi uh, deciding to visit Taiwan in direct uh, contradiction to the expressed wishes of communist China. Uh, again, uh, the communist uh, Chinese party organ, the Global Times, drew an explicit comparison between the standoff over Pelosi and the earlier incidents in which China issued warnings and then went to war. This comes from the official uh, Chinese uh, uh, communist news organ uh, that we mentioned there. It says this, Do, uh, don't say we didn't warn you, is a phrase that has been used by the People's Daily in 1962, before China was forced to fight the border war with India, and ahead of the 1979 China-Vietnam War, uh, was frequently mentioned during a forum held Friday by a high-level Chinese think tank, as analysts warned that open military options and comprehensive countermeasures ranging from economic to diplomatic to even military options would be on the table if U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gambles with a visit to Taiwan during her U.S. tour. So this warning and uh, the uh, very interesting use of phrase in this warning, don't say we didn't warn you, uh, certainly tells us that uh, tensions are very high between the United States and communist China at this point. In fact, Thursday night, uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping held a phone conversation with U.S. President Joe Biden, during which he once again warned the U.S. about the serious and significance of the Taiwan question and said public opinion cannot be defied. Those who play with fire will perish by it. It is hoped the U.S. will be clear-eyed about this. So we don't know whether uh, Nancy Pelosi is going to follow through and make a uh, on-the-ground visit to uh, Taiwan, but it certainly does indicate that tensions are rising here. Well, another area of uh, tension, um, almost on the other side of the world, uh, is expressed in a very interesting story uh, run by the Jerusalem Post with this headline, Iran says it will build nuclear warheads and turn New York City into hellish ruins. Uh, a video declared Iran's regime can move its peaceful nuclear program to a nuclear weapons program at a very fast pace. Uh, well, Iran expert Ben Sapti tweeted at, that an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, telegram channel threatened to produce atomic uh, warheads for missiles and said that Iran can immediately return to what it's called its Imad project. We've talked a little bit about the Imad project before on the program. The Imad project is uh, their uh, uh, move towards intercontinental ballistic missile technology, including uh, ICBMs that could hit New York. Uh, they say that they would not hesitate 
uh, to return to the Ahmad project and build an atomic bomb and the ICBMs necessary to deliver it if their Natanz facilities are attacked. Now, again, if you followed this broadcast, you know that Natanz is where uh, Iran uh, does most of its uh, nuclear uh, uh, projects as far as developing enriched uranium. If you were with us last week, we talked about the enriched uranium capability of Iran now approaching 60 to 90 percent. 90 percent is enough to build several uh, nuclear weapons. And if they uh, continue to develop the technology to deliver those weapons, well, uh, again, we do have a, uh, a very strong warning from Iran about turning New York into hellish ruins. Uh, the reason we point this out to you is um, uh, we talked a little bit about this on our uh, Twitter site, uh, scottr4h at twitter.com, if you want to follow us there, uh, about uh, a famous quote from a Jewish Holocaust survivor and uh, 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 Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, writer, Ellie Wiesel, uh, who said, when someone continually says they want to kill you, believe them. So... Uh, we are definitely seeing some serious saber-rattling going on with Iran. Uh, whether that's directed to the United States uh, at this point is beyond question. But another facet of it is uh, how Israel is going to be reacting to Iran going nuclear. I don't believe Israel will allow that to happen without a nuclear response. Now, whether the United States backs Israel in this uh, set of circumstances, uh, I think... It is uh, very, very clear that we are building up to uh, a biblical uh, birth pain as far as what's going on, uh, not only in Taiwan, not only how that affects China, another nuclear power, but also uh, what's going on in Iran. And uh, they're playing around uh, with uh, developing uh, overt nuclear capabilities there. Uh, the United States has classified the Iranian Republican Guard Corps as a terrorist entity. And uh, according to a report, Iran's nuclear uranium enrichment process to build nuclear weapons in the underground facilities of Fordo near uh, their holy city of Qum, uh, that is where they believe their 12th imam is now in seclusion and will come out of seclusion to lead the forces of Islam uh, to global victory in a last day's war. Uh, so uh, once again, Iran does appear to be on the brink of nuclear breakout, membership in the club of nuclear powers, whether Israel and the United States will allow that to happen and what measures will be taken is very, very key. You know, as we always say, uh, we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We do believe that uh, Jerusalem is the absolute epicenter of God's plans to right this world gone wrong. And if you want to stay up to date uh, about uh, our proximity, even to uh, the event we call the rapture, uh, definitely keep your eye on what's happening in Israel. All right. Now, speaking of the rapture, we got three questions, all following essentially the same theme of the partial rapture theory. I'll go in chronological order by which we've received them. Monica wanted to know if those Christians who do not believe there is a rapture will be left behind. Likewise, on YouTube, a question from Mike concerning partial rapturism, if it, there is anything in it. Uh, there certainly are things in it. Whether it's good or not is another matter, Mike, but we'll deal with that in a moment. And as well, the overall concern of the idea, and this is from Isaiah, if the rapture is truly imminent, since there are 
still uncontacted tribes that haven't heard the gospel, and then there's a few other segues in regards to this. So we'll move from 1 Thessalonians 4 to Matthew 24 as the... Or Matthew 25, for that matter. Yeah, Yeah. but as this theme progresses, for those who aren't familiar with the jargon, the partial rapture theory first requires a definition of the rapture doctrine, and let's make sure we note the difference. The rapture doctrine is an official belief and a recognized belief in Christianity of the end times, the field called eschatology, where the provision of those who have trusted in the Lord before the time of the Great Tribulation will be provided a means of escape the right. same way that Noah's Ark was provided before the flood and in a, uh, basically a uh, flee-the-city-eviction notice was given to Lot and all those who would listen to his warning at Sodom and Gomorrah. This has been the pattern for God's wrath since the beginning. And it's important to understand there's a big difference between, say, persecution or human suffering, and God's wrath. What is that difference? The difference is when Scripture directly identifies a time in history throughout as God's wrath, and a time in human history where Jesus told us, you're going to suffer this. There is never a twain, uh, I guess, a... Uh, thread joining the two unless you read it into the text, and that's where a lot of contention exists. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about the rapture, we're claiming the Greek word hapardso, which just means to be caught up, which is described for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where at a moment in history, people who haven't physically died will be physically caught up to be with the Lord in the air. This is in the context of those, in verse 13, of who, of basically people who have physically died without seeing Jesus return to right this world gone wrong. They wonder what has happened to them. And Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 with the following, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. So sleep, that is a euphemism for physical death, right. it's used elsewhere in scripture as well, in the book of Acts in particular. But it notes this, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again and have proper doctrine and have a proper expectation of his return, and no, anything, it's, it seems fairly narrow there. Yeah, the yep. ones who are qualifying for this hope is those who believe Jesus died and rose again. That literally puts the <laughs> partial rapture theory to the flames, but we haven't defined that yet. So just keep that in mind. All right. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep, remember, physically dead, in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So this isn't just Paul's hearsay or something that John Darby came up with in the 19th century, right? Right. The word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So what's the chronology so far going up to verse 15? People who have physically died are with Jesus. We're not going to see Jesus before they do, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Then we get to verse 16, where we're noting an exception. For, note this, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with great authority, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain, note this, shall be caught up. That's literally where we get the term rapture. Caught up in Greek is apartso. In Latin, the Vulgate, it is rapturos. So note that word. 
we are caught up to be together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we don't necessarily have to get into, at least as far as the substance of this question is concerned, the timing of the rapture and the controversy around that. If you have a follow-up question, by all means. Yeah, we love that question, but, but go ahead. the yep. concern in this question is, if the rapture is definitely a thing, and we can go to 1 Corinthians 15 for further clarification that there will be a point in history, those who have physically died will be with Jesus, and those who have not physically died will also somehow be with Jesus right? in a very immediate fashion, as yeah. for Paul notes into the Corinthian church in the twinkling of an eye. Snatched before the storm, as we say. And yeah. note, we would go to other passages for that, but the concern that I guess encapsulates the partial rapture theorist is, well, no, this isn't for all believers, the people who, you know, just pray to prayer, or new believers who haven't necessarily got their doctrine uh, straight, or immature believers. They would be, and maybe even, and this is the real kicker for the partial rapture theorists, backsliding Christians, compromised Christians, Christians that will be 1 Corinthians 3 style, saved as though through the fire, people right. who haven't been living godly lives, but have still at a point in history, and sincerely from their heart, received God's mercy for it. The claim is that they are put in a position where they would not be qualifying for the rapture, that the rapture is not for the entirety of the church, but only those who are in faithful expectation of his coming. And there's a great deal of legalism read into this as far as how you qualify that. Yeah, it inevitably leads you into that uh, neck of the woods. But yeah. And it uh, varies from the sublime to the ridiculous, but the point being made, if I haven't made it already, is this. In the passages that give us a layout of the rapture, the only detail that qualifies an individual for this are those who believe that Jesus died and rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, not verse 50, verse 1, yeah. <laughs> says this is the gospel by right. which you are saved, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Right. Verse 4 goes on to list the eyewitnesses, not the list of requirements you have to meet to qualify for your acknowledgement of these historical facts and your reception of them personally. That's the gospel. So if someone has personally received Jesus on his terms, they believe in his death and resurrection, you are by definition a qualifier for the rapture. Now the partial rapture theorists put forward the idea, and again there are a lot of uh, hullabaloo between people who would even deny a rapture. We'll get into that more in a moment. But the response that we see towards compromised Christians or scandal in the church right. or the uh, basically, I don't want to use their sloganeering, but I'm trying to phrase it in a way that makes sense. The idea that, well, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to live like hell and then uh, enjoy heaven when that's time too. We mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in passing, but when it comes to the mindset of, well, with the best of intentions, I would rather scare these people into thinking, oh, I'm going to miss the rapture and deceive them, essentially, into living a righteous life. 
then allow the Holy Spirit That's a to do problematic. It. Yeah, and, and and again, this isn't how they would think it, but this mm. is why we disagree. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to do literally His job in the yeah. heart of a believer. Yeah. So when we're talking about the partial rapture theorists, this is where the two mistakes get off. It's not, and this is addressing Mike's portion of the question. It is not a matter of you living a righteous life. We were created for good works, but we still can miss out on them and still belong to Jesus. We're saved by his works, not our lack thereof, or even contrary. Secondly, the motivation to scare people into the gospel is kind of half the message at best and a distorted message at worst. Because if you only tell people you're going to hell, now there's heaven. Well, Great, but if you forget to mention heaven or make that the emphasis that God's been good to you, then you're not really saving people. The focus is, I want to avoid separation from God forever, if they even properly define it, let alone to put yourself in a position where, oh, I'm living my entire Christian life like I'm going to miss the rapture, instead of, man, I love Jesus. I want to see what he's doing in my life today. It just ends up being a bummer, I guess, is yeah. the way to summarize yeah, it. Yeah, and, and one of the, the interesting things that we see, in especially in First Thessalonians chapter uh, 4 and chapter 5, is that the idea of the imminent return of Jesus for his people is uh, a call to comfort one another with these words. It doesn't say uh, beat uh, each other over the head with these words. It doesn't say scare the living daylights out of people with these words. Uh, properly understood, the imminent return of Jesus is a message of comfort to God's people, right? To God's people, and yeah. that's key. What qualifies you as God's people? Not your good works, but the good work of Christ. What identifies you as God's people? What allows you to enjoy being one of God's people? That is fellowship with his people and good works, but note the difference. Yeah. When And it's the same mistake that we try to clarify with people who get involved in legalism, when they would say, well, we don't want to affirm easy believism and just tell people they're going to heaven because they said a particular series of words at a particular place at a particular time in that order, mentioning Jesus and what he's done for them. We would be the first to stand alongside you and say that an insincere call to salvation is insincere. But if, on the other hand, we're going to manipulate people for a good reason, that's still bad. Right. And if it's regarding their salvation itself, or whether it's regarding one of the benefits of salvation, being a recipient of God's grace, that's where, ultimately, we would draw the line. Now, again, if someone were to teach these sort of things, we'd respectfully disagree with them in the same way that people would say, for example, teach a different view on the rapture. But when we're talking about this concern regarding end times and there being anything in it, this is what I think we can take away from the issue. The partial rapture theory affirms the rapture, regardless right. of its timing and so forth, right. we can yeah. say that it's affirming a doctrine. But it's still identified as a theory and a bad doctrine, if it's enforced as such, because it presupposes, confuses, and ultimately discounts the work of the Holy Spirit as an ongoing work in someone's life. And, and there's really kind of an underlying uh, spiritual error there. And, and really, isn't it about the nature of our salvation itself? I mean... We, we talk about being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air at the rapture, but what is it that qualifies us to go all the way and be in God's presence in heaven? That we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And, and that's it. You know, it, it's interesting. I wanted to, to mention this because this is a passage that I think uh, people that 
I, as you mentioned, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, try to scare people into getting get right or get left kind of uh, messages uh, directed to the church, is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins that we find in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has laid out uh, this uh, sweeping overview of uh, literally from here to eternity with his disciples, uh, from where they were to the time of his return. But at the end, he gives you the so what uh, about uh, the return of Christ. And the so what is that we are to be people who are constantly watching for the return of Jesus. And he will illustrate the need for having that watchful attitude uh, with uh, some parables in uh, Matthew 25. And one of the ones that I've heard brought up more often than not by people that say, oh man, you know, if uh, you're drinking, smoking, or chewing, or going with girls or doing, and Jesus comes back, you could be left behind, is Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Uh, Jesus said, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, that sounds a lot like Matthew 7. Yeah. Uh, the idea of Lord, Lord, we taught you in the streets. In your name, we did many miracles and cast out demons. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Uh, be gone from me, you practice lawlessness. Now, when we take a look at this parable of the ten virgins here, uh, we see that there were wise virgins who anticipated the Lord's return and lived their lives in light of all of that. In other words, they had the oil necessary uh, to be able to live in preparation for the coming of the bridegroom. Well, oil in Scripture is always a picture and type of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, who has the Holy Spirit? Those who believe that Jesus died and rose again. Yeah, you know, in the, the book of Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul said, you know, who gives the, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, the minute we put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Savior, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, the Lord himself said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. He doesn't come in and go out. He isn't in us and then he's out of us, uh, depending on how we perform up to specs on a, a particular day. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says. Now, it's very interesting that there were individuals that are portrayed as spirit-filled spirit-anointed believers who are ready for the bridegroom when he returned. There were others who, although they knew that they needed to prepare for the coming of the bridegroom, did not do so. And uh, they did not receive that, that gift of the Holy Spirit. That's key. And, you know, and it's very interesting how these individuals who say, Lord, let us in, Jesus didn't say, well, I can't let you in because you didn't have enough oil or your oil ran low. He said, I did not know you. 
the the difference between someone who goes in the rapture and someone who doesn't go in the rapture is if you know Jesus as your Savior, you're going to go, uh, just as a person who's going to uh, have a hope of heaven. What is the difference between someone who goes to heaven and someone who does not? It's not keeping up a certain level of conduct. That's getting the cart before the horse. Now, let's be clear about this. What is the nature of salvation and works? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 gives us the uh, insight not to get the cart before the horse, right? right? You know, we're told that for it is by grace that you're saved, God's unmerited favor. Nobody gets in because we've lived up to a certain standard, right? It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So how do we get to heaven according to that passage? By grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Grace meaning unmerited favor, faith meaning trust with reason, that you trust that that unmerited favor was shown to you. So are good works necessary in order for us to be saved? So far, verse 10 has not come up yet, and of course, salvation's already occurred by the time we get there. So, okay, no. so salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, not by good works, right? But what? For good works, yeah, that we for, should walk in them. Right. So uh, the important distinction is not to get the cart before the horse. And I think this has caused a lot of people a lot of stress and strain in their walk with God, a lot of fear-based uh, teaching about the end times that is really unnecessary for believers in Christ. We are not saved by good works. We're saved for good works because we belong to the Lord. And you mentioned earlier, because we love Jesus, we want to see him. And because we want to see him and we realize he could come at any moment, we want to live lives that please him. Not in order to be saved, right? But what? As a result of our salvation. Right. So if you don't have your doctrine of salvation, if legalism has crept into all of this, you know, if you view salvation, for instance, as God coming to your sins, they're all written up on a whiteboard, and God erases them and says, now don't mess it up. If that's how you view salvation, then be afraid of Jesus coming back again. God gave me a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming. Look busy. You know, there's a lot of people that, that look at the return of Jesus in that light. But when we understand that all of our sins, past, present, and future, were were paid for by Jesus on the cross, and that all we have to do to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf is simply trust in him. Jesus was asked, what should we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one who, whom he sent, not to believe and do this. Uh, salvation is only a question of God's grace, the finished work of Christ. Our job is not to work for it, but to simply believe what Jesus has done for us. Then once we are saved, God does want to talk to us about good works and changing our lives. And leading us into all truth. And note, if those aren't completed, it no more disqualifies you for salvation than taking the first step. Yeah. Without a second step suddenly invalidates the first. Yeah, how, how can anybody say they've got perfect biblical doctrine. The, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we're fully known. So if having perfect doctrine, even about the rapture, right, was necessary in order for us to go, well, then we're going to have to apply that to the rest of the Christian life. You know, is your soteriology, the study of salvation, perfect? Is your uh, pneumatology, your understanding of the Holy Spirit, perfect? Is your ecclesiology, 
uh, your uh, understanding of, of what the church is all about. Is that perfect? I can't the, spell any of these words. Exactly. So if these five-syllable words were necessary for salvation, we'd all be in a peck of trouble because none of us get it completely right. You know, we're all being led into all truth. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, I share this. Uh, you know, I keep a, uh, a, a file cabinet of sermons that I've taught in the past uh, on hand, especially when I first got involved uh, with ministry and when I was in seminary. And every once in a while, if I feel like I need a good humbling, uh, I'll take some of them out and I'll take a look at what I used to teach, say on, uh, for example, on the issue of whether the uh, ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit are still for today. I used to teach hardcore cessationism, that the gifts of the Spirit died with the last apostle. Well, over the you know, 40 years that I've been a Christian now, I've looked into the Word of God and I've studied it and I've come to the conclusion that that doctrine isn't supported by Scripture, supported by people's historical takes or traditional takes. But there's nowhere in the Word of God that says that the ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit aren't for today. And before everyone listening has an aneurysm and says, so how do I know you're not teaching false doctrine now? Um, that wasn't a false doctrine. That was a very secondary issue, but that's something God worked on your heart on. You still, back then, just to verify, we right. got you here for the interview. Right. Did you still teach that salvation is by grace through faith? Yeah, you know, the essentials of the Christian life. And, and what are those essentials? What, you know, we, we keep the, uh, the, 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 the bar pretty low on these things as far as what saving essentials are for believing Christ. There are saving essentials, but the non-negotiables are what? Well, first you have to vote conservative. You have to not <laughs> believe in a flat earth theory. You have to... No, no, no. That's a foreshadowing of some questions we've received. Uh, no, it is the Bible is our authority on what God is and isn't, the inspired, preserved, authoritative, and inerrant Word of God, that it was able to effectively communicate God's nature to us, which is as the following. He is a trinity, that God the Son is, of course, the person, Jesus of Nazareth, who in a moment of history died and rose from the dead. That's the gospel, the only way by which we're saved, and of course that this all stems from not only that work being completed on the cross, but that us receiving it is the only reason we're going to heaven. So the source of truth, the truth about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, and what he did for us, that's it. Yeah. And yeah. note, if the flat earth theory comes up, that's a secondary issue. If the partial rapture theory comes up, that's a secondary issue. And again, going into Monica's question, someone says, what if they just outright deny the rapture? Well, I know a few people who have a very bad attitude about the rapture, but I have no doubt that they'll participate in it. Why? Because the qualifier right. is those who believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. As much as I hate it when they bring it up, I'm glad that they still are teaching Jesus and him crucified and resurrected. Yeah, and, and when we have those things uh, under our belt, then we're getting somewhere. You know, Dale uh, on Facebook asked a question, can you believe in a flat earth and still be a Christian? Well, certainly you can. I just wish um, you'd talk you know, about it you, less. Can, can you believe uh, that a Bigfoot exists and still be a Christian? Well, you can, because it's not a salvation issue. But I would say this, Dale, and maybe this is the heart behind your question— uh, I've run into some flat earthers who come into church, and man, they have, they've got a burr under their saddle. They've got a bone to pick, and they're going to bend everybody's ear about why they believe in their flat earth theory. And at that point, I think a passage like Titus chapter 3, Dale, comes in, where it says, but avoid foolish disputes, 
genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after a first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Divisive. So if an individual comes in, and I, I really don't care what their spiritual hobby horse might be, uh, you know, and, and that's all they want to talk about. And you've got to see this my way, you know, and, and boy, you know, if, if you don't, uh, immerse someone three times while they're baptized, then you haven't baptized them properly. You know, these are foolish disputes and contentions that are not profitable. And, you know, after a first and second warning, if a person's not going to let that go, well, you know, I mean, if someone comes to the church and says, do you know, they faked the moon landing? You know, and, and they're just not going to let it go. We're gonna, look, we're here to focus in on the person of Jesus Christ. We want to worship God the Father. We want to honor the ministry of the Holy Spirit by focusing in on his word. You want to talk about these things down at the Waffle House on your off, off hours, knock yourself out. But that's not what we're here for. And, and if a person just can't let go of that, that's just a, a you know, dog bone they're just going to keep chewing on and, and cause distraction and dissension, well, you know, chances are in our fellowship we will politely but firmly ask them either to give that up or we'll ask them to leave. You know, if you can't be at peace uh, in the church, find somewhere else where you can be at peace. Go down and get your flat earth study going at the Waffle House, but don't do it here. Yeah, so just note those points and tying it back to... I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bagging on the Waffle House, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure they would do it more for us than we would. But the point being made is that, Monica, if you encounter someone who's proactive about that denial, not a salvation issue. Make sure that that's clear, not only in your mind and conscience, but also note, and this is the key as well, uh, if you're going to be using them as a source of edification, make sure that you're challenging yourself through them and to know what you believe and why about the end times. Because note, as we stated on secondary doctrines, we could be wrong. But on the other hand, I hope we've made a fair case on this program and many others that we do have fair biblical grounding for the rapture and that the objections made towards it are, of course, more emotional than factual. That all being said, let us know, Mike and Monica, if that helps you out and as well. And, and I've got a quick one for uh, Javier here. He wanted to know if there's any prominent secular or leftist supporters of pro-life. Uh, Bible I, questions, remember, I'm not aware of any, but... Well, let me, is... let me just give you a website that you can do your homework on here. It's called secularprolife.org. Uh, just go to secularprolife.org, and uh, they can answer uh, these questions for you. They're on Facebook. They're on Twitter. Uh, that is where I direct you. But as we mentioned, that's uh, we're, we're focusing in more on biblical questions than that. All right. Um, back to the Bible. Mac has a question about uh, three objections that were made from a, a hedonist friend of theirs. Uh, for those of you who don't know, hedonists are those who believe that pain is the definition of evil and pleasure is the definition of good, that God's nature is to make us feel good all the time. It was most popularized by Epicurus in the uh, ancient Greek days, but um, it takes another name today. I prefer to call it hedonism because it keeps us... That's pretty much what it is. It, it keeps us close enough to trouble that I'm smiling, but not close enough, they can hold it against me. And there's a lot of manifestations of individuals who believe that pleasure is the highest good in life. Even Christians. Yeah. But uh, the individual started with the pain assumption and said, uh, 
Why is there unlimited punishment for limited sin? Why is it fair to burn in hell eternally? Three false assumptions are made in that accusation, and right. all need to be properly understood. First, the definition of hell. Second, the definition of fair. And third, the definition of limited sin. When we're talking about limited sin, we're assuming, now again, false assumptions. I didn't say false information. If everything that they were saying was true, then I might have questions based on limited information. Right. But the information I have actually directly conflicts with this. Limited sin assumes, first false assumption, that you stop sinning in hell. Is that the case? We have, for example, the incident with the rich man and Lazarus when as he is in a state Luke of torment, 16, yeah. we yep. have an account of someone who's in this separated state from God. He's awaiting final judgment, but already he's not in a, uh, uh, I guess he is in a hot place, but he's not doing so hot, if you mind yeah. the pun. <laughs> what is his character being expressed at that moment? Granted, he doesn't want his brothers to come to this awful place, but he feels entitled to order Lazarus around and serve him. So would that be sinful, this extra yeah, the era same, of pride? the same self-seeking, selfish attitude that he had in life, he also has in death. So again, we can't make a definitive statement apart from Revelation regarding the end times, but you have to remind your friend, who says you stop sinning in hell? That's important, because our sinful nature goes with us, and we're just as prone to deviate from God's nature there as we are here. The only difference is we have different ways of acting on it. The second point that I think needs to be clarified, not just limited sin, but also fairness. Well, if fairness is the ultimate virtue, and we need to clarify this as well, here's the second false assumption, that if all were treated fairly, we wouldn't be punished in hell. If fairness was God's priority above anything else, what would this world look like? Uh, it wouldn't be here any longer. And us in it as well. Yeah, we'd be charcoal briquettes if we got what was coming to us. I mean, if that's your definition of fairness. Because the nature of the gospel is not it was fair and right for God to redeem us, that God was obligated because of our cumulative good deeds for to For it is by us. fairness you've been saved through faith. The gospel ain't fair. Yeah. If we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell right now. But yeah. because the gospel isn't fair, we've been shown mercy. That's the second important false assumption you need to clarify. Yeah, you don't want, you don't want God to be fair with you. Trust me. Yeah, yeah. He's, you want him to be good to you, which yeah. is, of course, the issue. Is yeah. I say, I feel good about the way I do things, therefore everything I do is good. You see where this philosophy conflicts with the Bible. But that all then being said burning in hell eternally. Well, hell, by definition, is not a lake of fire. It's described as such, but that's one of three illustrations. Right. The lake of fire is mentioned first, interestingly enough, at the last, or third to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, right. where it's described as a lake of fire. And I've had experiences with fire, not fun. No. But the second illustration, a little bit closer to the ballpark as far as uh, authoritative sources, not to say Revelation's not authoritative, but we need more information, not less, is in the gospel accounts where Jesus describes it as outer darkness, where right. people, of course, are weeping, yeah. weeping and gnashing their teeth. That's uh, an attempt to distract yourself from a present state of anguish. It's not fun, but the last time, again, given my experience with fire, um, that usually gets off light. So how is this outer darkness conjoined with 
a lake of fire. And the third is a comparison Jesus made in another gospel account to Gehenna, which is in all the, the way on the mount, yeah. and all the way back in the book of Jeremiah, yeah. the Valley of Hinnom. Yeah. Now, the ba- Valley of Hinnom was once a nice garden spot outside of Jerusalem, but it got converted to a garbage dump. And granted, you make a similar comparison and theme to Gehenna, Outer Darkness, and Lake of Fire. Not all real estate options that I would recommend for your uh, next, I guess, moving scenario. And Gehenna became a garbage dump because Solomon set up a altar to Moloch in the Valley of Hinnom, and that's where infant sacrifice took place. So it was not just a garbage dump. It was a place that had this horrible horrible oversight of, of, of tremendous evil. So note those three illustrations, and this is where an insight to C.S. Lewis might help. You can look it up in his writings on this topic, but in Mere Christianity and on the addressing of hell, he made the point of saying this is either symbolic or this is literal. And he said, you better hope it's literal, because a symbol is using something we can understand to clarify and put into perspective something we couldn't. If I were to take James chapter 1 at its face value and note every good and perfect gift comes from God, and hell by definition is being cut off from those blessings. Now note, to a point we're cut off from God in this world, but also to a point we're not. We enjoy his blessings, we enjoy his peace, his mercy, and the sort of things that reflect his nature. Atheists are still capable of reflecting the image of God even though they don't know him, even though they reject and blaspheme him daily, even when we do. But the point being made is this, a total severance of all those gifts, that's not good. No. In fact, that's the definition of not good. You're separated from everything good. So with a that's proper, bad. Yeah. yeah. So with a proper <laughs> understanding of hell, a proper understanding of fairness, and a proper understanding of limited sin, this whole accusation is essentially attacking what Peter and I have described, a straw man of Christianity, that God should treat us all fairly by letting us into heaven. False. That he's punishing us forever for sins we only committed in this lifetime. False. And, of course, that the punishment is burning in hell forever. False. Or maybe, perhaps, but you don't know for certain. And the point being made is this. If the punishment of hell is being given separation from God, why is that unfair? That's what you've been asking for your entire life. If you spend your life saying, I don't want fellowship with God, and he gives it to you, you don't then turn around and say, how dare God include consequences that he warned me about? Wait, I'm the loser. Why why would you give me what I've always asked for? And that's the problem. So then as a follow-through on this, he gives an example of hedonism. Uh, Why is homosexual... I assume homosexuality, a sin. Can you break down Romans one twenty six? I didn't have to go there. You know, uh, where I usually go on that question is, is this, and and I think it gets down to an issue that is deeper than the the practice of sexuality. Uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter nineteen, Jesus was approached by some of the religious rulers of his time with uh, what they would consider the ultimate trick question. They asked him if it was lawful to, for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. Now, the reason it was a trick question was you had two main rabbis that were opining on this subject. One was named Hillel and the other was Shammai. Hillel believed that divorce 
was given to the people of Israel could really uh, be given for any possible reason. In Deuteronomy 25, there is a line about divorce, and if a man finds something displeasing about his wife, and Hillel camped on that. And so divorce for any reason, uh, if she burned your breakfast, if even you found uh, another woman who was more pleasing to you, she was by definition displeasing, you could divorce her, and uh, all you had to do was fill out the proper paperwork. Another rabbi named Shammai said, no, 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 no. It, it, the emphasis there was about sexual immorality. And that would be the only reason that you could divorce your wife. Uh, anything aside from that uh, was not grounds for divorce and was therefore a sin. So people were divided on this. You had the conservatives that were saying, no, uh, you can't get divorced for any and every reason. You had the more liberal point of view saying, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, you just move on. Uh, and so these religious rulers wanted Jesus to come down on one side or the other for one reason, uh, because opinion was pretty much evenly divided. If Jesus took a opinion on this controversial topic, loses half his audience. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for wisdom and insight. So Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus goes back to the definition of marriage. Marriage was not something man invented. It was something that God gave to man as one of the first and greatest blessings he would give to man in the Garden of Eden. He presided over the first wedding. And here we see that God defines the practice of our sexuality in this way. It is to be between one man and one woman bonded together by God for life. Now, would anything other than that be called sin? Well, this is how we define sexual immorality. If I take the practice of my sexuality outside of the God-ordained institution of marriage that he, in fact, has designed for the practice of our sexuality for very important reasons, our sexuality is a very powerful but very uh, potentially dangerous part of who we are because if we take our sexuality and practice it outside of those guidelines that God has given, you know, for instance, if I practice my sexuality before I'm married, the Bible refers to that as fornication. Why is it a sin? Because we are making a commitment with our body that we haven't made with the rest of our being, with our heart and soul and our mind. It's sort of the try before you buy idea. Well, you know, maybe I'll get married to this person. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll commit myself to them for the rest of my life. Maybe I won't. Uh, God says, no, I want the practice of your sexuality to be practiced in that avenue of trust, that, that arena of trust that I have put together. And so if we practice our sexuality before marriage, we violated God's standard. That is, by definition, a sin. If, on the other side of the coin, after I'm married, I take the one man, one woman committed together for life practice of our sexuality and practice it outside of that bond. If I bring someone else in and have a sexual relationship with them, I have violated that standard again. I've committed adultery. And because of that, that one flesh relationship God desires for us to have, uh, if I've done that, then I've violated the standard of God. Now, the reason I give you that uh, definition of marriage there 
is pretty simple. If I, as a heterosexual, violate that standard of marriage by saying I'm going to practice my sexuality outside of it, either premarital or postmarital, I've sinned. I've said my lust and my desire for pleasure is more important than God's standard. If another individual says, well, I don't know about this one man, one woman thing, uh, I'm going to practice my sexuality with someone of the same gender. We have, again, practiced our sexuality outside of the boundaries that God has set up that he defines as marriage. Now, if I, as a heterosexual, am in a situation where either I'm not married, God's prescription for me pre-marriage is what? One man, one woman for one lifetime that you're currently not committed to, so none. No, abstinence. I am supposed to not practice my sexuality until I get married. Once I am married, uh, I am not to practice my sexuality with anyone else. If I violate those boundaries because of my desires, because of my desire for pleasure, I've violated God's standard. And thus, If on the other side of the coin, say a person has homosexual desires, they practice that the, those homosexual desires outside the confines of marriage, they have violated God's standard. What is God's prescription for someone who has those desires? By the way, having those desires is not a sin. It's acting on those desires that makes it a sin or not. And what the, would God say to the person with, say, a gay orientation? Same thing he'd say to me at this point in my lifetime. Focus on your relationship with me. Yeah. So it's utterly, if you want to use the word, fair and just. But when, you know, again, we in the church sometimes will elevate homosexual practice as being the be-all and end-all sin of all time, we're saying something the Bible doesn't say. If on the other side of the coin, I say, well, my heterosexual violation of this isn't as bad because at least it's not, I'm saying something that the Bible doesn't say. What we need to focus in on is why God has designed marriage to operate in this way. We find in Ephesians chapter 5, it's supposed to be a picture of our relationship with God someday, our relationship with Jesus and the church. And so there's a spiritual dimension to all of this that we dare not uh, not take into our, our accounting if it's going to come down to how we're going to practice our sexuality. That applies to someone who, say, has uh, gay inclinations. That applies to someone that has uh, uh, heterosexual inclinations. So just make sure that's being consistent. And uh, Mac, let us know if any further conversations go well. We'd love to continue this one, but the music cuts us off. So feel free to email us your questions if they were biblically relevant. And we'll look forward to talking to you all again tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.